Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine, led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Thank you for listening today, and welcome to this next episode of Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine. I am fortunate today to speak with Dr. Sally Wenzel, who practices pulmonary, allergy, and critical care medicine. She is Professor of Medicine and Immunology and the Rachel Carson Chair in Environmental Health, as well as the Chair, Department of Environmental and Occupational Health. She is also the Director, University of Pittsburgh Asthma and Environmental Lung Health Institute at UPMC. So thank you for taking the time today to speak about an important topic, severe asthma, that by many estimates could include up to 5 to 10% of the patients with asthma. You have published extensively on this topic, and I would refer our listeners to your concise clinical review of this topic that was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine back in April of 2021. To start off, uh, would you please define what severe asthma should mean to a clinician? Well, severe asthma is something that actually should probably concern a clinician the first time they see a patient. These remain difficult to manage patients and very complex patients. And I think it's very important to go through multiple different steps to try to understand these folks who come in with an ostensible diagnosis of of, uh, severe asthma. And so the first step is that you have to make sure that the patient has asthma. That sounds like such a simple thing, but it's really not. Um, Patients can develop asthma any time in their life. The concept that all asthma is a pediatric disease and just migrates into childhood, of course, is is not correct. Um, And there are people that can develop uh, asthma after a respiratory uh, infection. There are people that can develop asthma after a um, uh, job change that they're exposed uh, to various occupational threats. Um, and, And of course, just for no reason at all, at least that we can identify. Uh, and, and these are patients who, when you see them, it's really critical to do uh, very well-performed spirometry, both before and after a bronchodilator. Asthma is still defined as reversible airflow limitation. Now, that doesn't mean reversing back to normal. That's a common misperception but they really need to have some element of reversibility of at least 12% or 200 mLs, or they cannot have a diagnosis of asthma. Now you can do it several times, but you still need to, need to um, confirm at some point that they have a reversible component to the airway. And why is that important? That's really important because it helps to identify which treatments are appropriate for given patients. If a patient has truly has COPD, non-reversible, generally non-reversible airflow limitation, the responses to treatment are going to be very different than what might one might see in, in an asthmatic uh, condition. And then, of course, there are other things like bronchiolitis, um, even bronchiectis that, bronchiectasis that often masquerade as asthma, but really are not. And then, of course, you've got vocal cord dysfunction on the other end, where you really have almost completely normal spirometry for the most part, um, but evidence of upper airway obstruction. So all of those things can sometimes be labeled as severe asthma, but they're really not even asthma. So let's get that first step out of the way and make sure that they have asthma. 
And then I think once you have determined that they have asthma, one has to identify whether this is really asthma that if you, you address a few of the comorbid conditions that I know we'll probably talk about later, um, if you address things like uh, current smoking, if you address things like um, uh, reflux disease, if you address things like nasal congestion and post-nasal drip, that their asthma will in fact be manageable. Um, and certainly I think that's the first piece of this. So to address those and then to if you've addressed those and the patient is still having symptoms, make sure that you're optimizing their asthma um, prescription medications. So again, are they on the, the gold standard for the treatment of asthma, which is of course, high dose inhaled corticosteroids in combination with a long acting beta agonist. That is still the gold standard for the treatment of, of asthma and specifically severe asthma. And when you have a patient who you've addressed all those comorbid conditions as best you can, you're convinced that they really have asthma. And when they are either still symptomatic on high dose, what we define as high dose inhaled corticosteroids with a long acting beta agonist, or who really require that dose to maintain their asthma, then you have a patient who truly has severe asthma. And that was the definition that was provided by the European Respiratory Society and the American Thoracic Society now close to 10 years ago, um, actually, but I think is still pretty much the gold standard today. Uh, and, and again, it really does require a rather extensive evaluation to assess all of those things. And as part of that, we would even recommend that in these complex patients that they spend at least three months under the care of, a, of an asthma specialist, an allergist, a pulmonologist, um, who can address all these things in, in detail before you actually give the person a diagnosis of severe asthma. Mm -hmm. This is assuming that they're adherent to the regimen you want them to be on. Absolutely. Um, right. And, yeah. and is that uh, five to 10% of the asthmatics? Is that a good number to think? That I think it is a good number. I, I absolutely do think it's, it's a good number. Um, you know, there have been some very rigorous studies that have been done um, in Europe that got to about 4%, but I think they actually probably eliminated some folks that they maybe should not have eliminated. Um, so I, I would say five to 10% is, is pretty close. Okay. Yeah, and you touched uh, quite a bit on some of the, the comorbidities that I know many of these patients can have. And as you kind of mentioned, these comorbidities sometimes mimic uh, asthma, uh, and you need to make sure you're not missing uh, actually the underlying asthma when uh, they have something else going on. I think you touched on that very nicely. Uh, and we know that the primary care physicians or the pediatricians are the ones who are frontline at this point. And they have to be the ones then decide uh, to move the patients on. Mm -hmm. uh, other than the spirometry that you mentioned, I think uh, there are a number of other terms that are used looking at um, biomarkers, whether it's mm -hmm. high T2, low T2, early onset, late onset. Uh, can you kind of break that down somewhat and tell us what biomarkers or other testing may be helpful to make some distinction? among these patients? Yeah, no, I think it's very, it's a very exciting time for asthma because we can start to think about asthma in the realm of precision medicine, that we have directed treatments that will help certain people. And even non-specific treatments seem to help certain people better. Uh, and so I think in 2022, any patient with asthma should be assessed at a minimum for whether they have uh, a disease that is type two high, TH2 high or not. And the current gold standard for that is something that 
everyone, almost everyone can measure in um, their, their clinical labs, whatever that supports them is just a, a, a complete blood count with a differential. It's one of the cheapest tests that you could even order today as, as a clinician. Um, and so you want to look at the eosinophils. And for years, eosinophils have been completely ignored on a differential. It was like, well, you know, is there neutrophilia or not? No, we're, we're really talking about are the eosinophils present? And in fact, are they elevated? And the threshold for what's high eosinophils has somewhat varied um, from study to study and, and the guidelines to guidelines. But in someone who's not on any inhaled corticosteroids, not on any systemic steroids like prednisone, then I think you would want to see the eosinophils be about 300 or above. Anything 300 or above is considered abnormally high eosinophils in an asthma population and qualifies them for a type two high asthma patient. And we say type two high as opposed to TH2 high because um, other cells besides Th2 cells can make these cytokines or these, um, these uh, biochemicals right. that actually drive this type of inflammation that produces eosinophils, um, IL-4, 5, and 13. And those are important cytokines to actually remember because there are therapies targeted to them. Uh, but we now refer to it as type 2 high as opposed to Th2 high because other cells can make them besides Th2 cells. So in people that are on high doses of inhaled corticosteroids already, or even certainly people that are on prednisone on a daily basis, you cut that threshold a little bit lower and it really goes more to around 150. But I think you still want to have at least 150 before you would call a, a person a, a truly a type two high uh, asthmatic. There's a lot of overlap between eosinophilic asthma and type two high asthma. They're they're not completely the same thing. I think eosinophilic is a subset of type two high asthma that you can have people because of their inhaled corticosteroids or their systemic corticosteroids where you can't measure eosinophils in their blood. So you say, okay, they're eosinophil low. But if you look for other biomarkers of type two inflammation, you find that they're elevated. So eosinophilic high is a subset of type two high uh, asthma. Um, and so that's the first thing that I, I think any clinician, after you've seen a patient probably twice for asthma, I don't think you have to do it the first time you see an asthma, asthma patient, but once you've seen a patient because of follow-up and maybe they're not doing quite as well as, as you would like a low dose inhaled corticosteroids, then I think it's time to get a CBC and just start um, phenotyping them or assigning them to type two high or type two low asthma. Um, and I think that we know that inhaled corticosteroids are, again, gold standard for the treatment of all asthma patients, for that matter, seem to work better in people that have evidence of type 2 inflammation. So if you have elevated eosinophils in your blood, you're likely to respond um, to inhaled corticosteroids. If you have no eosinophils in your blood and you've never been treated with corticosteroids before, chances are you won't respond as well as if you had um, some measurable eosinophils in your blood. And that's, I think at the primary care level, that's really all you need to do to, to start characterizing the, the patients. I think once you get to the specialist level, then I think there's, there's more things that should be done. And uh, where would the term allergic asthma come into play with at this level? Yeah. So again, that's a very e excellent question. And it's another sort of 
subset or umbrella under the big uh, umbrella of type two high asthma for the most part. Um, so allergic asthma is typically asthma that develops in childhood. Um, it's typically associated with other allergic conditions like allergic rhinitis, hay fever, those sorts, sorts of things, sometimes with eczema. Um, and it is typically associated with evidence for type two inflammation. So elevated blood eosinophils, but not always. There are people that have allergic asthma that you rarely see an eosinophil in the blood. And, and again, I think that's been a point of confusion for many people. It's, well, they're allergic, they must be type two, but that doesn't always um, happen to be the case. And in fact, the, the drugs that we use to treat uh, patients with this type two high asthma actually seem to work a little bit better in people with um, a disease that isn't necessarily characterized by allergic symptoms. In the less allergic asthma patients seem to do as well, if not better than the, um, the allergic patients. Before we talk about some of the other biomarkers, uh, you mentioned spirometry being very important, obviously. What, what role at this point is uh, the methacholine of the bronchoprovocation studies? Is that something that primary care physicians should be thinking about, or is that really in the realm of the specialist? Yeah, I, I would say that the methacholine challenges are generally going to be things that the, uh, the specialist is, is going to use. I think a, a, a certainly a primary care uh, physician can do repeated spirometry. That I think is, is very easy. And one of the little tricks that I like to do is actually, um, if a patient comes to me and they said, oh, you know, last week I was feeling terrible and I got some prednisone from my brother or whatever, um, and now, you know, now I'm feeling good. So they come in with normal spirometry. I like to say, just, you know, let me know if you're having any increase in your symptoms. Let me, give me a call. And then I'm gonna order spirometry for you when you're having symptoms, because spirometry is much more likely to be abnormal when someone's having symptoms than when they're not. And you're much more likely to demonstrate that reversibility if a patient is having symptoms than um, when they're not. And, and most primary care offices can still call um, you know, their local lab or whatever and get a patient in within a window. You know, I, I don't know, everyone's very, every setting is different, obviously. And if it takes two weeks to get somebody spirometry, well, <laughs> that may be too late. Um, but, but certainly I, I think that's a really nice way to, to uh, demonstrate both obstruction and reversibility if you didn't demonstrate it when they first came into the office. To talk about some of the other biologics, I know we have an older one that really dealt with the IgE antibody. And then, as you mentioned, we have the IL-4, IL-5 receptors, and now more recently, the uh, thymic stromal uh, lymphoprotein. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about the inflammatory cascade where these biologics, um, well, these cytokines and antibodies play a role, and then how we get the targeted medications that help? individuals. Yeah. So um, again, all of this falls under the, the big umbrella, as we've been talking about, of type 2 high asthma. And type 2 high asthma seems to be associated with you know, Th2 cells, T helper type 2 cells, and or some other cells, including maybe macrophages and, and monocytes um, that also seem to make these cytokines, as well as innate lymphoid cells and maybe even mast cells. So there's a range of different cell types that 
under certain circumstances, maybe related to allergies, maybe related to viruses, maybe related to family history and, and environmental exposures that we don't even fully understand, um, that causes cells to start making the, these, IL, these cytokines IL-4 and IL-13. And, and really IL-4 is probably the first critical um, cytokine here in that it's the one that actually develops um, Th2 cells. And without IL-4, you, you can't have a Th2 cell. Um, so that starts the development of a Th2 cell. The Th2 cells then make the cytokines IL-4, IL-5, IL-13. These um, cytokines then um, can activate B cells. And by activating B cells, they make um, IgE, which is part of this cascade. IgE then um, can bind to mast cells. Uh, once it bound, it's bound to mast cells, uh, it serves as a receptor for various um, IgEs that are made to allergens, cats, dust mites, um, cockroaches, et cetera. All of those things which the antibody binds to and then binds to the, the mast cells on the, um, through the IgE receptor and activates the mast cell. And that's sort of the mast cell um, allergic cascade part of the, of the paradigm. But then in addition, <laughs> it's very complicated, these IL-4, uh, certainly IL-5 and IL-13, we know can be made by these innate lymphoid cells. So innate lymphoid cells are not um, Th2 cells. They're a different type of line what they call lineage negative uh, T cells that, that actually make, or lymphocytes, not T cells, lymphocytes that make IL-5 and IL-13, maybe a little bit of, of IL-4. And they seem to be activated by um, viral related pathways, maybe bacterial related pathways, but they don't require T helper cells <laughs> to, to, to function. But once they start making IL-4, uh, sorry, IL-5 and IL-13, then you can start activating the same processes that you would if it was coming from a Th2 cell. It's just that it, it starts at a different level. And, it, and at least there's some suggestion that it may start later in life and may be associated with people that have nasal polyposis um, as part of their asthma, uh, their asthma uh, characteristics, they have nasal polyps as, as part of that. Um, and the, the ILC2 cells are also stimulated, of course, then by this new cytokine, this TSLP or thymostromal lymphopoiesis. Yeah, thymostromal lymphopoietin. Right. I have the same problem. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a hard thing to say all at once. But anyway, thymostromal lymphopoietin, TSLP, that is felt to be generated primarily by epithelial cells and epithelial cells in response to virus. And so it may be that at some point in your life, you were exposed to a virus that caused your epithelium to produce this TSLP. That then stimulated these innate lymphoid cells and these innate lymphoid cells started making these cytokines that then drive an, an asthma reaction with um, increases in mucus, with increases in these blood eosinophils. And another biomarker that we haven't talked about, which is of course, exhaled nitric oxide. So when you're presented with, or we have a patient with severe asthma who you now are starting to decide that a biologic may be for them, how do you start sorting out which of the biologics is right for that particular patient? Yeah, again, this is a, a really an important question and one that there is not a, a black and white yes, no answer on. Uh, and, and I think 
this is where it is important to have a specialist see a, a patient because it's not an easy decision to make. Um, I think the, the data would suggest that the anti-IL-5s and anti-IL-5 receptor antibodies, and there's three of them that are um, available in the US, that those work better in people that don't have an allergic type of asthma. So if you have someone who got their disease later in life, after the age of 18, maybe even 12, but later in life, um, specifically if they have uh, nasal polyps, um, specifically if they have uh, severe disease that requires corticosteroids, oral corticosteroids, prednisone a lot, those are the patients who seem to do pretty well with anti-IL-5. If you've had your disease your whole life and you're very allergic to you know, the neighbor's cat, then anti-IL-5 is not likely the best treatment for you. And even the data in children is very limited with the anti-IL-5s. And of course, allergic asthma is typically the type of asthma that begins in childhood. So if anti-IL-5s are only marginally effective in patients um, who are above the age of 12, and it's, it's Nucala, sorry, mepolizumab <laughs> is approved um, for, for um, children, I believe above the age of five to 12, but it really was based not on efficacy studies. It was based on, on, um, on safety studies. And so it's really hard to know whether the anti-IL-5 in the younger asthma population has, younger allergic asthma population has any efficacy. So if you get a whiff of allergies in the patients, I would consider another drug. And that's probably the first sort of cut point that I, that I use. Um, if there are allergies, then I would consider an anti-IL-4 receptor antibody, um, especially if there's evidence of type 2 inflammation, especially if there's an elevated blood eosinophil count or an elevated exhaled nitric oxide. I would positively uh, consider that before I would consider omalizumab. And the reason for that is even when you cut the data by the high type two biomarkers with omalizumab, the data on reduction in exacerbations and improvement in lung function is not as good as what you see with dupilumab um, with the IL-4 receptor antibody. So again, just based on published data, I would start with the IL-4 receptor antibody. Now, if you have somebody who's gotten, uh, who has had asthma since their childhood and they are allergic, but you can't find a type two biomarker anywhere, then I would probably start with omalizumab. I think that that's not an unreasonable choice at all. And then finally, you know, the newest kid on the block is the, the uh, anti-TSLP, tezapelumab. Um, and I don't think we know really where that fits yet, to be quite honest with you. You know, the, the data um, in their oral corticosteroid sparing study was not as good as the data was for the anti-IL-5 or the anti-IL-5 receptor antibody or the anti-IL-4 receptor antibodies. And that would make me think that at least it's possible that if you have a very severe asthma patient who's on a lot of oral steroids, um, anti-TSLP, tezapelumab may not be the first choice, that you probably should go with an anti-IL-4 receptor antibody or an anti-IL-5. Um, on the other hand, the data with, uh, with uh, tezapelumab would suggest that maybe it's also efficacious in people with very low levels of type 2 biomarkers. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can extend the biologics down a little bit lower with tezapelumab um, than you can with the dupilumab or um, mepolizumab and, and venerolizumab. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of the, 
the little niche where that might be the first drug that you would try in, in a patient with very difficult uh, type of asthma. But again, with the caveat that being on, on prednisone right now doesn't seem to make you have a better response, unlike the IL-4 receptor antibodies and, and the anti-IL-5s. You, you mentioned the exhaled nitric oxide, and I don't think you specifically mentioned the IgE antibody level. Are those levels of those two biomarkers, do they play a role in helping you decide which drug to use or not? Certainly, um, exhaled nitric oxide does. I'm, I am a pretty strong proponent of exhaled nitric oxide. IgE doesn't seem to predict much of anything, although the uh, company that de- that uh, companies that started to develop omalizumab thought that that would be a good biomarker for them. It ended up not being a good biomarker for them. Now, I think it's helpful, can be helpful in more complicated patients to un- help me as an asthma specialist understand them. But I think routinely an IgE level by itself doesn't do very much. Specific IgE testing. So again, Ig specific IgE to dust mites, to dogs, cats, et cetera, ragweed, that can be helpful, even from an avoidance perspective, if somebody finds out that indeed they're allergic to, to dogs and you know they're sleeping with their dog, well, that might be something to consider, maybe not sleeping with your dog. But, but beyond that, I don't think that it really predicts responses to, to uh, biologics very well. Exhaled nitric oxide is something that requires specific um, testing equipment for, and it, but it's very simple equipment. And the cost probably to actually do the test is somewhere between 20 and $30 now. Obviously, there's all sorts of other layers on hospitals and clinics, et cetera, that have to be paid for, but the actual price of doing the test is still quite reasonable. Um, and it is a very nice biomarker measured in people's breath of an enzyme that generates this um, nitric oxide that's produced by the airway epithelial cells. It's produced by the airway epithelial cells primarily under the influence of IL-4 and IL-13, not IL-5, only IL-4 and IL-13. And so if you see elevated levels of this, um, you can pretty safely uh, determine that there is IL-4 and (laughs) IL-13 active in in this person. Um, and, And it responds very nicely to treatment with uh, dupilumab. So it, if it's high, you treat with dupilumab, there's typically at least a 50% reduction in the exhaled nitric oxide. So again, you know you've hit your, your target um, when you're treating somebody with, uh, with dupilumab. And the degree of drop actually correlates with the degree of improvement in lung function, the degree of improvement in FEV1. So for those reasons, I actually think it's a, it's a pretty good biomarker. Some people would also suggest that it's a biomarker of adherence and that if you have somebody and you say you put them on inhaled corticosteroids, inhaled corticosteroids typically make the exhaled nitric oxide levels go down. In more severe patients, that's not always the case. But in your average asthma patient, when you put somebody on inhaled corticosteroids, that exhaled nitric oxide should be reduced. Um, And so if you have that situation, and you don't, and again, the patient is still symptomatic and their exhaled nitric oxide hasn't changed after you put them on inhaled corticosteroids, it, it's worthy of having a conversation with the patient regarding their adherence to, to therapy. Aside from the science behind which drug should be used, I know in the real world, we have to deal with a couple of things like making sure that coverage by insurance is available. <laughs> um, and those biomarkers you mentioned certainly have to be ticked off to uh, 
the right levels for that to happen. And then I also wonder, do you see much uh, difference that the dosing schedules for these medications in office, at home administration, does that help some of your patients decide which one they want to use or do you huh. direct them more? Yeah, I, I, they can certainly, if you're, you're concerned that, you know, someone is going to have difficulty administering their medications, um, the home situation isn't ideal or, or whatever, um, then certainly the less frequent at home dosing is probably the, the, the best way to go. Um, I think most medications are now available as at-home dosing, including uh, omalizumab, which for years you could not dose at home, but now has uh, become available. And so, you know, it, there is a difference between having a medication that you dose every two weeks versus every two months. There, there's no doubt about that. But to be quite honest with you, at least in the severe asthma patients that I take care of, their main concern is that they feel better. And if they feel better, they are willing to inject themselves every two weeks. Right. And I've almost never had anybody say, you know, I, I just, uh, that's too often. If, if I could only be on an every two months drug, I, I would do right. this. Uh, just switching gears a little bit. You mentioned uh, T2 low earlier. Um, do you see a role for bronchial thermoplasty in this population of T2 low? What, what's been your experience with thermoplasty? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And um, I, I am a, certainly of the belief that if thermoplasty has any true indication, it would be in somebody who has type 2 low inflammation. And we haven't, as a scientific community, really sorted that out yet. I mean, there are some studies, none of which are placebo-controlled, that really have suggested that, oh, maybe it's your T2 high people that actually respond better to, um, to thermoplasty. And then, you know, even though it was set up initially as a way to ablate the smooth muscle in the airways, the data to actually support that is still pretty modest. And there's other data to suggest maybe it's a change in the epithelium. Well, if it's change in the epithelium and the epithelium secretes all these things that drive mucus production and so on, then maybe it's a broader treatment than that. I will say that, uh, you know, the, uh, the few people that I've had um, under my care that have had bronchial thermoplasty, when it's successful, and it's, it's successful a portion of the time, and I probably, I, I don't wanna say because my sample size is too limited to, to, to actually speak to that, but you know, people would say 50, 60% probably of people respond, um, is that, it's, a, it's not a long-term effect, that after three to five years, there's evidence that the whatever effect was there in the first place has actually gone away. Um, and I actually don't know of anyone who's doing repeat thermoplasties, not, not in my practice. I'm sure there are some somewhere that have done repeat thermoplasties, but, but I have not. Um, and I, it would scare me a little bit because you are structurally changing the airways when, when you do this and to, to, to do this repeatedly over time without good safety data to support that um, would, would certainly make me concerned. Right. I think thermoplasty came on, on the market really before the IL-4, 5, and 13 drugs came on. And, you know, at one point it was the only other option that we had besides omalizumab and, and oral corticosteroids. And I think now there are so many other options on the market that seem to work really pretty well in many, many people uh, that, that I think thermoplasty is used less now than it was in the past. 
where do you see the uh, the future development of drugs for these severe asthmatics heading? Are we going to see more biologics or what do you think at this point in time based on your experience? Yeah, again, really good question. I, I think um, the, the biologics, the combinations of IL-4 receptor antibodies and the anti-IL-5s have probably done a, a, a good to a great job of treating somewhere between 50 and 70% of the severe asthma population. Um, and, you know, I think that these have been transformative drugs. There's no doubt about that. But there still remains, again, 25 to 50%, depending on where you cut the improvement, who are still having some degree of symptoms and so, many people who haven't responded at all. So I think, and, and then those people who have very little evidence of type two inflammation. So I think trying to understand what are the, the pathways that are driving um, the other the other 25% that don't have any evidence of type two inflammation. And then those people that actually don't respond as well to the type two biologics, even though they make the biomarker criteria for a type two biologic. Um, and I think there's a, you know, some of the research that we've been uh, doing suggests that even type two asthma is not the same in, in everyone that you can have a, a lymphocytic type of uh, a type two high asthma. You can have a non-lymphocytic type too high asthma. And obviously we can kind of try to understand those pathways, um, maybe one of which is ILC2 and the other of which is a, a, an adaptive Th2 cell better than we can target those um, elements of, of um, the immune system for treatment. And you know we've been very interested in uh, type one inflammation. So interferon gamma and the pathways that go along with that. Um, I doubt that we'll ever block interferon gamma in these patients, but there are many other downstream pathways, including JAKs and STATs that, that could, be, could be targeted. The JAK inhibitors are of course being utilized in, in uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but also in atopic dermatitis and showing efficacy in atopic dermatitis. So there may be some overlap there. And then uh, we're very excited because of um, our Precise Network, which is an NHLBI-sponsored network, um, an adaptive trial design in patients with severe asthma. We're actually trialing five different treatments for patients with severe asthma, and they get um, enrolled and re-enrolled depending upon what their biomarkers show. We're actually studying an anti-IL-6 called plazakizumab in that study, and there's pretty good evidence that there's about a third of, of severe asthma patients that have pretty profound elevations in their IL-6 levels. Um, I, again, anti-IL-6 has been successful in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. So we're actually hopeful that, um, you know, with the results from this study, we'll at least know whether we should explore anti-IL-6 further in, in asthma as well. I think the biologics, one considers the biologics generally as um, intravenous or intramuscular or subcutaneous uh, um, injections. And I think some of these other inhibitors like the JAK inhibitors are oral medications. And so, you know, there are patients that I think would rather take an oral medication too. So that's sort of another kind of step um, in treatment. You're certainly on the, on the front line of the research that's uh, going on in this population. So thank you for that. And as you mentioned, it's a complicated and complex situation, but uh, I would really recommend our listeners uh, go back and look at your Blue Journal article last year. It's a very good review of the, the chemistry and all the cascade you mentioned. Um, so again, I want to thank you for the time you took today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dr. Rizzo. For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.